You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. He's tweeted announcing that he's on the show. And it's time for us to get our segment with Dr. Chris Smith started. The Naked Scientist. Every single Monday, we field your science-related questions. It's your opportunity, in fact, to talk to this incredible mind. Can we call you a genius, Chris? <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way. But you're, you're the genius. Quick off the mark on Twitter there. Gosh, you must you must have one eye on what you're up to and one eye on Twitter. Understand I'm impressed. That low. Come on. <laughs> Can that be genius? <laughs> well, no, it take it, you know, to be able to multitask in that way. I'm, yes. I'm saluting your multitasking ability. Absolutely superb. But no, do get in touch. Anybody who uh, wants yeah. to, to tweet in some questions as well, of course, because we can pick them up via that read. It's at Naked Scientist or, of course, at Radio 702 if you'd like to get in touch with us yes there's news that's come out of india with the new that with their own vaccine but you know the talk is that they're using dna material how different is it in its composition and how it's been developed compared to any of the others that we've become familiar with yeah that's right so the vaccine announcement that came out just at the tail end of last week beginning of the weekend is of a new product which is essentially what Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines do. It's a piece of genetic material, but rather than using RNA, which is one form of genetic information that they use, this one uses DNA. And you take the DNA message that you would find in one of your cells, for example, that corresponds to the instructions for how to make part of the coronavirus, and you package it up in such a way that you can then inject this cells pick it up they can decode the dna and they then make the coronavirus message and that's then presented to the immune system we've had dna vaccines or at least the technology to do this for a really long time and people have, have gone about um, you know introducing bits of dna in this way in a range of different ways it's not that different really from what astrazeneca's vaccine does when they use a virus to deliver a piece of dna which has got coronavirus instructions in it so it's pretty similar in in that respect but the key thing here is it's another important player in uh, a, a very um you know, fast-paced marketplace where there's huge demand. Mm -hmm. And the fact that India can produce this, they say it's resilient and robust at higher temperature. That's also very encouraging because, of course, in resource-poor settings, like remote parts of India, remote parts of the African continent, this sort of technology is going to be really, really important. So it's, it's good to have another player join the party they say the effectiveness is about 60%. And you might say, well, that sounds a bit low, but actually... If that were a flu vaccine, we'd be rubbing our hands together and saying, brilliant. Mm. And so it, it's very, very good to have something that is available, cheap to make, available at scale and easy to transport and deploy. So we'll get a lot of data on this quite quickly because they've given it emergency approval. Wow. So we watch this space, we see what happens to it. And uh, as long as it, it does deliver, then um, I think a lot of other countries could be beneficiaries. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's go to the lines. We're taking your calls this afternoon. Uh, your science-related questions, your curiosities, what phenomena do you want uh, the Naked Scientists to explain today? 011-883-0702. Lindiwe, good afternoon. You're calling us from Four Ways. Hi. Hello, Azza. It's Lindiwe here from Four Ways. Yes, welcome. You know, Azza, I, I grew up knowing that uh, we were made from dust, humans. Mm. You know, God created us from dust. So all my life, and this year I'm 44 in Egypt, but all my life I thought that when somebody dies, they turn into soil. So if we exhumed a coffin, 
we would find um, a skeleton and soil. Mm. Until my husband about a week ago told me that, no, we get eaten by maggots. Then I asked, where do the maggots go? How do they come in? And where do they go after they finish their meal? Yes. yes. <laughs> what are their meal? <laughs> and also you found this out last week. <laughs> last week, as my disappointment, I was like, what? <laughs> All this time I thought we were dead from dust. Yes, yes. Returning to dust. The literal no. sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'd like to know how do they come into the coffin mm. and where do they go? After yeah. the meal. Yeah. <laughs> After the meal. We are, the we are maggot meal. Lindy, well, thank you very much. Chris? <laughs> well, I think it's slightly more complicated and subtle than that. If mm-hmm. you leave a corpse on the ground, and it doesn't have to be a human corpse, as anyone who has stumbled on a dead animal by a roadside will know, there will often be lots and lots of maggots on there. The maggots arrive in the form of flies, which can smell out anything that might be a potential meal from miles away, because flies have incredibly good senses of smell. The flies lay their eggs on the item, uh, whatever it is. The eggs hatch into maggots. The maggots consume as much of that thing as they possibly can, as quickly as they can, and they do it by secreting digestive enzymes and other salivary materials around the the larva, the maggot, which then liquefies the material which it's swimming through and enables it to suck it up, eat it, and incorporate the material into its own body. Once it reaches a threshold size, it then turns into a pupa, and you get this stiff thing. It's got a stiff casing around the material, um, the maggot. And on the inside, it is rearranging itself literally back to its component parts. It's like you taking a car, ripping it completely to pieces, and then out of out of a really banged up old banger comes a Ferrari because <laughs> that's a brand new fly that emerges and <laughs> off it goes to go and repeat the cycle. So you need a fly with access to the corpse to get maggots. But most of the time, in most places, we're more respectful of the dead and we bury people first. So if we bury people first, very often the maggots don't ever get there. But what does get there are lots of microorganisms. And most of the decomposition and degradation of a body is done by microbes. Lots of fungi, lots of microbes, some microbes that are in you to start with, some which join the party from the environment as the process of degradation takes place. And this is all part of life's rich tapestry, Mm. that a, a body represents a big collection of energy and molecules that can be used to extract the energy and and to drive new life processes. So this recycling process is exactly the same that goes on when a tree falls down in a forest and the tree gets returned to nature. There are microorganisms that are there capable, armed with the right metabolic knives and forks to break it down. So yes, there might be the odd beetle that will turn up and help the process, but if the tree gets buried and the beetles can't fly in, the microbes are still in the soil and most of that decomposition process is microorganisms with a bit of helping chemistry for uh, help from the helping hand from the chemistry in the soil as well because certain soils will be more pro-degradation than others mm, so the metabolic fork and knives that's there's a new one i like that right let's go to the lines you can give us a call on zero one one eight eight three zero seven zero two. uh cynthia you're in sandringham what's your question this afternoon um yeah thanks very much uh what i would like to have explained is um you know, I'm an agnostic, I'm not religious, but I wonder how it is that animals, you know, can adapt. They they have a built-in ability, say, to run fast or swim or something. But how is it that some of them land up looking looking like the environment? They look like leaves or mm-hmm. maybe something else. Um, I find this very puzzling. So how do they adapt Hi, to Cynthia. camouflage? Yeah. Hello, yeah. thank you. It, it, 
this is the amazing phenomenon of evolution and uh, natural selection, as Darwin put it, you know, survival of the fittest. So what would have happened way back in history, because you're looking at the here and now, you're looking at an animal or an organism in its environment that it has become really well adapted to surviving. Well, if you wind the clock back to a time when that animal was first appearing on the evolutionary scene, it might have found itself in an environment where it was less well adapted. Mm -hmm. There would have been, just because of populations being highly diverse, there would have been some individuals that looked like one particular form, some individuals that looked a different form. If a predator comes along, it's going to, and a, a really good example of this are these so-called peppered moths, because in England, in the Industrial Revolution, this, this story was very much manifest. You had enormous amounts of pollution making trees look black. And as a result, moths that were white stood out like a sore thumb on the black tree trunks, tree trunks blackened by pollution. And so they were easy targets for birds to pick off and eat. But the black cousins, the black relatives of those moths, blended in perfectly. So the black ones escaped. Unsurprisingly, therefore, the ones that had the genes that made them have more pigmentation and look black were more likely to breed and more likely to end up with more of those genes in the population than the genes that made for white moths. So you end up with a situation where you select for genes that give you an advantage in the environment in which you evolve. And slowly, those genes will fashion or mould an individual and creep over time to be better and better at doing that because the next the next uh, progeny of those black moths might be even blacker or they might be a bit less black to look more brown but to match in even better with a certain environment and so you select for genes that are just right to give you just the right characteristics for the environment that you live in and so those animals that have evolved to look like leaves wouldn't have started off looking like a leaf mm -hmm. they'd have started off looking quite different but they over the process of natural selection animals that were slightly better camouflaged would have survived they would have bred and passed those better survival genes into their offspring and those offspring would have then enriched those genes further by blending in even better mm. you slowly home in on the ideal sweet spot genetically where you fit like a hand in a glove into the niche the environment you live in Yes, and uh, what helps you survive is what then what we see. So those traits that have allowed the species to survive then become more prevalent. That's right. And so you have to, when you look at something like that, not to, apart from being wowed out by the fact that you can do that, not be entirely surprised because it's taken millions of years yeah. for organisms to become so well adapted to their environment. And this is why we meddle with the environment at our enormous cost and peril because you, you can't, in a heartbeat, just unstitch millions of years of evolution or expect millions of years of natural evolution to come in and fix a problem that we create in a matter of decades. Yeah. And that's why climate change is such a threat, because we're asking animals and many other species to adapt much, much faster than nature's capable of, of making them adapt. Hmm. Let's go to Harangua next and hear from you, Clement. Hi. Hi, Azza. How are you? I'm good, Clement. What's your question today? Yeah, my my wife has had two abdominal operations, yeah. and uh, and I've had this from other ladies as well. They they they've healed from the operation, but when it's cloudy, they get a discomfort. Mm. But only when it's cloudy weather. Mm. On other cold days, they they don't complain that much <laughs> about the pain. But when it is cloudy, they say the cloudy weather is making 
the pain where they've had the operation. Yes. Worse. Yes. It's not only the relationship. Right? Yeah, it's not only women, Clement. I've also heard other people have had heart operations, you know, that, that oh, particular really? scar. Yeah, that particular scar would be sore uh when yes. the weather is cold. Um yeah. Chris, um any any sense or any answers for Clement? Hello, Clement. I think this is a classic example of a cross between the, the placebo or nocebo effect and also attaching significance to a coincidence there's probably all psychology at play here if you expect something to happen it's a cloudy day i feel a bit miserable i don't feel quite on top of things like i normally would and the weather's making me feel a bit depressed and down you're more likely to focus on notice and be thwarted by other things like achiness or problems that if you were feeling on top of the world and you were busy and you had stuff to do and you're in a good mood because the sun's shining, it's easier to dismiss. And so I think probably people are more likely to ruminate on, think about and therefore potentially exacerbate a symptom when there's less to distract them. And it may well be that that is what is going on here, that people almost expect this to happen. They've heard other people say, oh, when this happens, that could happen. And so, unsurprisingly, they then focus on that and then make it happen by the psychology of, of if I say to you, don't think about this, the first thing that goes leaping through your mind is the thing I've told you not to think about. So I, I think this is all psychology. I don't think there's actually anything organic going on whereby cloudy oh. weather can make certain parts of the body hurt more. I think it's more that cloudy weather just makes you feel a bit more miserable and you're not quite so happy and you're expecting it to happen, so it does. Mm. Or that uh, the, the, the pain in that scarring somehow comes alive when the weather's adverse. <laughs> Let's go to Kahiso next in Centurion. Hi, Kahiso. How's it, other? Good, how are um, you? Question, good, good. Mm. Um, the last time I spoke about this, I was told I was drunk, so maybe. <laughs> uh, there's something that happens when when you take a pee and, and your body then shivers uh, a little bit after you've done it. Um, uh, post pain shivers. I think the concept is how can it be explained? <laughs> you're not peeing. You're not peeing in cold weather, are you? Cloudy cold weather. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. Okay. But yeah, I'm interested to know how do you explain that concept? Okay. Well, it's funny Thank you talk you. about the cloudy cold weather because, in fact. One fairly trivial theory of why pea shivers happen is because when you get your bits and pieces out, if it is cold, it's going to make you go, ooh, <laughs> and, and you might shiver and shudder a bit. <laughs> but we, we don't think that's the dominant way that this happens. We think that what's actually underpinning this is that in order to go to the we, or actually it can also happen, some people also get funny sort of shivers and shudders when, when they have other bodily functions as well. Mm. The reason this happens is that those bodily functions, particularly having a wee, is not under conscious control. When you go to sleep at night, you don't wet the bed, except when you're a little tiny baby or when something else is majorly wrong with you, because underneath your conscious control is a subconscious automatic system called the autonomic nervous system that takes care of all of the things in your body that need taking care of, but you don't have to worry about. And when you want to go for a wee, although you know you want to go for a wee, The reason it doesn't instantly start when you think, I want to go now, is because your brain has to say, okay, I want to go for a wee, it's a good time to go for a wee, but can the automatic nervous system now make that possible, please? And then there's a bit of a delay, and then you start. 
And this is part of the reason why you also get the phenomenon known as bashful bladder syndrome. Now, men will know this more than women because of the way men go for a wee. Mm. Men go to urinals and you all line up next to each other and there's always that little bit of intimidation. <laughs> all these other people are standing around and the more people there are around you, the longer it takes to get going. Yeah. Same story. Your automatic nervous system is in defense mode when you're around other people it sort of barriers are up whoa someone might you know clobber me or something mm. and i feel very vulnerable so it takes longer for that message to kick in now when that message does kick in start weeing because the automatic nervous system the so-called sympathetic nervous system is also involved in other things like temperature regulation and shivering when you activate the circuits that are going to turn on the i want to go for a wee now system they sometimes spill over a bit of the neurological activity into adjacent nerve circuits that are involved in the I need to shiver to warm up. Yeah. So we think that the shivering is an involuntary reflex brought about by activation broadly across your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, your autonomic nervous system, to enable you to go for a wee. And in the process, one side effect is you occasionally get some extra automatic functions that you didn't really want, but they happen anyway, and that's including shivering. Oh, wow. It does have the benefit that it, if, it. if you shiver, then you, you, you get rid of all the drips, which is quite good. <laughs> but not so good if you miss and they go on the floor and then you get a very angry partner. Yes. I saw a toilet sign at the back of a loo that said, uh, we aim to keep the toilets clean. So uh, please aim as best as you can something or other. So, uh, Well, the, the other thing that people do is they put little things. It's, it's sort of caught on after someone pointed out that this does work. You put things to aim at in urinals. Oh, right. And uh, one, one urinal company were, were actually making urinals that had a fly that was actually... It printed onto the urinal like the bowl and they found they got few, far fewer splashes because people were aiming for it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, what, yeah, almost influencing through cues and things, uh, build, making the environment as, in order to influence behavior. In yeah, certain aim here. Yeah. <laughs> Yako's called us from Santon. Hello, Yako. Hi, Azania. Hi, Chris. How are you guys doing? We're good. Hi. Welcome. Your question? Thank you. Uh, just a quick uh, story about how the evolutionary mechanism actually works without intent. Uh -huh. um, so in Japan, there's a beach where on the backs of the crabs are kabuki masks. So you know those Japanese ceremonial masks? Yes. And you wonder how does that happen? So the story is actually that the one of the crabs on the beach had one of these features on its back. Now, obviously, it's not aware of it, mm. but there was a samurai warrior that walked the beach, and he found this crab, and he found it beautiful. So he went back to the village and decreed that nobody was allowed to catch any of the crabs that had those features on their backs. Oh, wow. So, of course, what happened over time was that all the local crabs were caught, except for the ones that had the kabuki masks on the back, and the beach only ended up with kabuki mask crabs on its back. So that's basically how evolution works by natural selection. That's in this sense unnatural because humans interfered. Yeah. But there's no intent involved. It's just the pressures of the environment collect and weed out uh, whatever features are non-desirable. Mm. Mm. Wow. I just Googled it, Tiako. It's as you say, and the crab, uh, you know, just the, the, the on the shell, it does look like when you put it next to a mask, it looks like a mask. Yeah. Amazing story. So Thank course, you. 
So, of course, the, the crab is not aware of it. Yes. Uh, even the environment is not aware of it. But over time, through natural selection, the only survivors mm. are the ones that get selected. Yes. Brilliant story. Thank you so much. Uh, that's Yako in Santon. Uh, do we still have time for... No, we don't. No, we don't. And that's it. Um, Chris, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. A great story as well. I hadn't, I hadn't heard the one about the, the crabs. So I had to talk about moths. So now I can add crabs and crustaceans to my repertoire. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Yes, and how we also influence the evolution of certain species. Thank you. Until next week, Monday. Until next time. 